The Bible reading this morning is from John chapter 14, verses 6 to 17. Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really knew me, you would know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said, Lord, show us the Father and that will be enough for us. Jesus answered, Don't you know me, Philip, even after I have been among you such a long time? Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and that the Father is in me? The words I say to you are not just my own. Rather, it is the Father living in me who is doing his work. Believe me when I say that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or at least believe on the evidence of the miracles themselves. I tell you the truth. Anyone who has faith in me will do what I have been doing. He will do even greater things than these, because I am going to the Father. And I will do whatever you ask in my name, so that the Son may bring glory to the Father. You may ask me for anything in my name, and I will do it. If you love me, you will obey what I command, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another counsellor to be with you forever, the Spirit of Truth. The world cannot accept him, because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he lives with you and will be in you. Amen. David's now going to come and um, talk to us about that Bible passage. But before you talk to us, David, I'll pray with you. Father, thank you for David. Thank you for the preparation that he's put in for this morning. Thank you for your guidance um, and um, giving him the words to say. And I pray that as he speaks to us now on this passage, um, our hearts would be open, our minds would be open to hear what you have to say to us. Um, to encourage us and uplift us and prepare us for the week ahead. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you, Elizabeth. Well, once again, I'm deeply grateful for this opportunity, for this great privilege of being able to open the Word of God. Although on this occasion, I feel a bit like Paul when he wrote to his second letter to the church at Corinth who is sufficient for such things. I have a nephew who shares my name. David grew up in Dubai in the United Arab Emirates. He's in his 40s now, but when he was a very young child, he became obsessed with elephants. He had lots of picture books of them, the story of Baba the elephant, Dumbo the flying elephant. Some of you may know Rudyard Kipling's How the Elephant Got His Trunk and so on. And his favorite toy was a cuddly elephant, which he took to bed every night. So when he and the family came over to England for a holiday, uh, we decided to take David to Colchester Zoo. We were living in Ipswich at the time. And all the way there, um, he talked excitedly about seeing his absolutely most favorite animal in the world. Well, we bought the tickets. 
we made our way straight to the elephant enclosure. And David came face to face with his first real live elephant. And he screamed. And he screamed. That's not an elephant! (laughs) The trouble was, of course, his immature, dare I risk the pun and say his truncated mental picture of what an elephant was actually like, proved utterly inadequate when confronted with the truth, the real thing. In the late 4th, early 5th century AD, a man called Augustine, one of the greatest Christian thinkers of his day, wrote this in Latin. Si comprehendis non est Deus. If you can grasp it, it isn't God. Augustine wanted to help folk to realize that one of the mistakes people make when thinking about God is the one my young nephew made with the elephant. They kind of fashion an image in their minds which is utterly inadequate. For if God were no bigger than my imagination can comprehend, no larger than the dimensions of a human mind, he would not be worth believing in. God may be just a tiny three-letter word, but it signifies someone so immense, even the vast and limitless dimensions of the universe are just too small to contain him. Unaided, the human mind can no more fully grasp the greatness of the living God than unprotected, the human eye can directly stare at the brightness of the blazing sun. And yet, paradoxically, it is possible to look at the sun, even to study it, get a better measure of understanding of it, by looking at its filtered image, its reflected likeness. Indeed, scientists in this way now know more about the sun, its form, its features, its fabric, if you like, precisely because they have limited their gaze at an object whose undiminished glory would otherwise blind them. God can be known, and he can be better understood, though we should not expect ever fully to wrap our minds around who he is. Indeed, if we did, such a God would be but an image of our own invention. We would have an idol. Nevertheless, God has graciously condescended to the limitations of human comprehension and the thinking of finite minds, and he has made it possible for us to know him by giving a revelation of himself. Now, that revelation, uh, though gradually given, grew and matured over time, was expanded and enriched until, with the coming of Jesus, all of God's character and nature that could be seen and shown and spoken of was made manifest in him. And as a result, Christians have come to realize that if we are fully to do justice to the complete and the composite picture of the God first discovered in the Scriptures, finally disclosed in the Savior, then the only word that truly encapsulates this revelation is Trinity. Our God is triune, God in three persons. We've sung it, blessed Trinity, Father, Son, Spirit. And do not allow anyone to suggest that this doctrine is a mere theological invention, pieced together by a Christian committee to complicate faith. 
It is true that the word Trinity appears nowhere in the Bible. But the reality to which it bears witness is found everywhere in the Bible. Though admittedly this truth comes into sharpest focus and finds its greatest clarity in the pages of the New Testament. And one very brief but significant example of which from the very many we might have chosen to consider this morning, we're going to explore in some detail in a minute. It's so brief that, in fact, it doesn't even constitute a complete sentence in the original context. But nevertheless, it bears eloquent testimony to the inescapable truth of the Trinity. John 14, verse 16. I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever. And it's statements like this one that lace the lines of the living word that must be woven into any authentic and biblically-based understanding of the God we meet in its pages. Now, mercifully, you don't have to be able to explain the triunity of God to experience him any more then someone needs to be able to explain all the complicated rules of grammar to speak English. But that doesn't mean to say that those rules are either an invention or an irrelevance. The cat sat on a mat. That's a very simple sentence, isn't it? One that a small child could both utter and understand. But if we wanted to help a non-English speaking person both to understand it and why it is both said and written thus, then we might need to begin to make reference to other things like the object, the subject, the noun, the verb, the preposition, the definite, the indefinite article, tenses, sentence structure. Well, in a similar way, that is what the historic creedal confessions of the Christian faith, which outline the doctrine of the Trinity, represent for this doctrine is merely the terminology, given the limits of human language, which make complete sense of what we now know about the God who has given this biblical revelation of himself. It isn't an invention. It is a distillation. Let me tease this out for you by giving you another analogy, which begins with a question. What do you know about the atom? Well, it was the ancient Greeks who came up with the concept. Indeed, the English noun, atom, comes from a Greek adjective, atomos, literally meaning indivisible, literally uncuttable, atomos. To them, the word atom described the smallest possible quantity of stuff, or indeed the tiniest possible sliver of time. And you might be interested to know that in this latter sense, Paul, who's the only biblical author to use this Greek term, told the Christians in Corinth that Christ's return would happen en atomo. I think the NIV renders it in a flash, in an instant, in a moment. The ancient world's smallest imaginable time scale, which Paul further described as happening En rife ophthalmu, in a blink of an eye. That's a pretty short space of time. But you see, our understanding of the atom 
um, has developed, hasn't it? It has enhanced over the past 200 years. Back in 1803, a man called John Dalton was the first person to come up with a coherent scientific theory about atoms, which he imagined as tiny spheres uh, that could not be divided. However, over the course of the next 200 or 100 years or so, scientists have concluded that the atom, which was once believed to be indivisible, uncuttable, a single solitary object, hence the borrowed Greek name, was actually a kind of community of three. Now, I know some of you are going to tell me it's a lot more complicated than that, but stick with the, the principle. Now we need to think about the proton, the neutron, and the electron. And it was this growing body of incontrovertible evidence which led scientists to revise their original, one might say simplistic, understanding of the atom. And therefore the language they employed when um, expressing their formulation of the facts about its true nature. Of course, in all that time, in fact, since the dawn of time, the atom had not changed its nature in any way. It was merely that our human comprehension and understanding had been transformed. So now let me ask you another question. What do you know about God? Well, as believers in the Bible, we want to endorse and affirm the fundamental conviction, actually couched in the language of a creedal confession, made by another ancient people, not the Greeks this time, but the Israelites. It's found in Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 4. It's known to Jews as the Shema, after the first word in the Hebrew language, which encapsulates their statement of faith about God. Shema Israel. Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God. The Lord is one. See, over against the polytheism of every other nation around them, be that Egypt or Assyria or Babylon or Canaan, whose inhabitants all worshipped a pantheon of, of different deities, a multiplicity of gods, uniquely, extraordinarily for the age, and significantly, the people of Israel witnessed to their faith in one God. Israelites, when they were being faithful to the revelation they'd received, were monotheists, believers in one God, not polytheists, believers in many gods. As the psalmist declared, Psalm 96 and verse 5, all the gods of the nations are idols, but the Lord made the heavens. And we should note that that word Lord in that sentence, as it is in the Shema, actually, is the word that's merely spoken by readers of the text. It isn't the word in the text itself. The word that is said is the word Adonai, Lord, Master, Boss, the chap in control. But the word that is in the text there is the divine name, Yahweh or however that name is said, we're not too sure. So perhaps you prefer the, the transliteration Jehovah or Yahweh. We know what it means, however. I am who I am. That is the name he gave at the request of Moses, who wanted to be able to say which God had sent him back to the Israelites, whom he was about, God was about to free. 
on Mount Horeb. So in, in Exodus 3 and verse 15, God said to Moses, say to the Israelites, Yahweh, Elohei avotekem, I am who I am, the God of your fathers. The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name, singular by the way, name forever, the name you shall call me from generation to generation. The God of the Old Testament is a single deity who refutes the existence of any rival. He names himself, Yahweh, I am. We might unpack that as, I am the ever-existing one. I am the immutable, unchangeable one. And at no point in the New Testament is any suggestion made that there is any God other than the God who spoke to Moses on Mount Horeb. In the very gospel uh, from which Elizabeth read to us a moment ago, the gospel of John, the one that we're going to consider again in a moment, Jesus, in conversation with his contemporaries, admonishes them with these words. Uh, John 5, 44. You accept glory from one another, but you do not seek the glory that comes from the only God. Some of you may remember the prayer of Jesus in John 17, in which he declares, this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God. Or listen to Paul, who when writing to the church in Rome asks, is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of the Gentiles too? Yes, of the Gentiles too, since there is only one God. Or in the letter when he wrote to his young friend Timothy, burst into a prayer of praise. We don't know the music, but perhaps Chris will write some for us. Now to the King eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. And all the people said... There's a little bit of a Church of England in every one of us, if you force it out. What about James, who was the earthly brother of Jesus, albeit writing with a measure of sardonic mockery to those who thought creedal orthodoxy was the be-all and end-all of faith? He declares, you believe that there is only one God? Good. But don't forget, even the demons believe that, and at least they shudder. Indeed, we might quote every single human author who contributes to the canon of the New Testament scriptures, each of whom, in their own way, endorse and affirm the cardinal confession made by the Israelites from of old, since the days Moses came down the mountain. Shema Israel, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad. Yahweh is our God. Yahweh is one. So what are we to make of these countless other statements found in the same New Testament, indeed in the same Gospel of John, such as the one we read a moment ago? John 14, 16. I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate, another counselor, another helper, to be with you forever. And if we borrowed the completion of the sentence which comes in the next verse the spirit of truth. Now clearly the respective activities of three persons are being talked about here, aren't they? First there's the I who speaks the words, and you know his name, his name is Jesus. 
Second, there is the father to whom Jesus says he's about to make his request. But he speaks about a third, the spirit whose future help Jesus knows will be given by the father. But these brief words also hold within them a kind of flurry of further facts about the character of these three in the nature of, and the nature of the relationship that exists between them. So let's just tweak the order a bit and, and the sequence and first consider what these words tell us about the character of the one whom Jesus says he will bring his request to. Jesus calls him the Father. Now, no prizes although we didn't give out any fudges, so perhaps I might be allowed to give a prize, but no prizes for knowing that Jesus here spe is speaking about God. Though it is noteworthy, is it not, that to Jesus he is also and always Father. Here, as elsewhere, throughout the ministry of Jesus, God is addressed by this most intimate of terms, do you know in the entire Old Testament, the word Father is used ten times. In this gospel alone, Jesus refers to God as Father, can you count? 109 times. By any measure, that is a fundamental shift of emphasis, isn't it? It's not that God has not revealed himself as Father in the past, that that language is not included in the revelation he had given of himself, but with the coming of Jesus, that aspect of the character and nature of God is shown into sharp, thrown into sharp relief. Indeed, famously, Jesus encouraged his followers to address God in exactly the same way. We haven't said it this morning. Maybe at some point we will. Our Father, who art in heaven, he is not the remote, distant God of philosophers. He is not the anonymous, abstract ground of our being, as some have chosen to define him. He's not merely the first cause needed to get everything started. He isn't simply the intelligent designer required to account for purpose and order in the world. As such, God is almost reduced to a concept isn't he? A kind of theoretical supposition, presupposition, I suppose, rather than a personal presence with a paternal nature. But undoubtedly, God is personal for this personal pronoun, he, is always used to describe him in both Old and New Testament. And not merely here in this statement we're considering everywhere in the scripture, but he is also paternal, he has a father's heart. Now it's the task of others in this sermon series to, that we're beginning today to unpack in greater detail each of the persons of the Godhead, Father, Son, and Spirit. But it is crucial to our getting a handle on the nature of the Trinity that we should be sure that the God with whom we have to do, the God revealed most perfectly and fully in Jesus, should be known to us as Abba. Father. Indeed, all the Bible teaches us of this aspect of the character of God is worthy of un being unpacked. I have no insight as to where the others will be going, but I hope, and I'm sure we will over the next few Sundays, 
Think perhaps about his fatherly authority, his fatherly affection, his fatherly acceptance, his fatherly generosity, his fatherly fidelity, his fatherly dependability. But if we dare to call the maker of all that is, seen and unseen, our Father, and we may, then it is because that is who he is by very nature. It isn't a role he plays sometimes. It is who he is, has been, always shall be. The first person of the Trinity is known best as Father. And I frankly, I have to bite my tongue that I'm tempted to say more about this tremendous truth than my time here this morning allows But our topic and our text also direct our attention to a second person. The one who says, I will ask the Father. Thereby clearly defining his own relationship to God in terms of sonship. Now actually if we go no further than the narrow parameters of this single statement that has been made by Jesus here, we might also say that his words reveal his unique sense of sonship but they also seem to paint him as a kind of supplicant, a subordinate. And whilst Jesus, to the surprise of his contemporaries and the outrage of his detractors, readily addressed God in this most intimate of ways as Father, it would appear that even so, he knows he can only ask. Just ask. Well, there's no surprise here, is there? For surely this is but a man speaking to his God. However familiar, some might even say over-familiar, he is in the language and relaxed he is in the relationship. He's still an inferior addressing one who far outranks him. But this is not what our text shows. Neither in the testimony it offers or in the terminology it employs. Listen again, I will ask the Father and he will give you what I ask. So take note first that Jesus has a definite expectation, a confident conviction, a positive assurance, even before he asks, that the one he calls Father is going to do just what he asks for. Secondly, though this, I'm afraid, only is perhaps less evidence to those reading the text in English than the language in which John writes, Koine Greek. For this term translated ask is this word erotao. Now that's notable for two reasons. John has just recorded Jesus telling his disciples in the future they will be able to ask for things, ask him for things. I will do whatever you ask in my name so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. You may ask me for anything in my name and I will do it. Now just lay to one side for a moment The staggering thought that Jesus here is inviting his followers to address their prayers to him. No, lay that aside just for the moment, but don't bypass that thought. The fact is that John uses, in that previous verse, a different word for ask. It's a very different Greek term. It's the term aiteo. And this difference, especially coming in such close proximity within literally one verse, as we read the text, it cannot be other than deliberate. John chooses a different word. 
a fact that becomes even more noteworthy when we realize that John and other New Testament authors too always employs the former when speaking about the prayers or the requests of Jesus to this person he calls Abba, and invariably the latter when speaking of those of his followers. For the verb eretao is, a, is used only of those who ask something of an equal, a peer, a partner, a colleague, a teammate. The verb is used of requests made by one having a unique and special footing with those to whom their appeal or request is being made. In contrast to this other verb, iteo is used of those who must ask from a position of inferiority, of dependence. It's almost akin to the English verb to implore or to beseech, to beg. Sadly, my wife's not very well this past week or so, so she's not here this morning, so I can get away with this illustration. When my wife asks me if I, if I have any cash in my wallet, she can have, because she's going to the shops and has already spent all the money she has in her purse, she is not expecting me to say, Marion, get in line with the rest of the beggars who are currently beating a path to my door. What she is expecting is something like this. Oh, of course, my darling, how much would you like? Why? Because she asks as an equal. I'm a modern man. She is my equal. She is also my companion and has been for nearly 48 years. No, it is 48 years now I come to think about it. In a union grounded in love, in mutual respect and in esteem, not as one who must plead. Jesus is the Son. He is not the Father. But he speaks as one who shares the Father's status and standing and rank and reputation, his nature and character, a truth to which time and again this Gospel of John bears witness. And in the light of the consideration we've made of the fatherhood of God, listen to what John tells us was the response the enemies of Jesus had to his life and his language. John 5.18 For this reason they tried all the more to kill him not only is he breaking the Sabbath, pretending he was God who could command or break commands at will, but he was even calling God his own Father, making himself equal with God. But this should come as no surprise to readers of John's Gospel. You know the opening lines of this account of the life of Jesus. In arche en hologos, en hologos en prostontheon kaithios en hologos. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the word with means there, sort of face to face kind of with, but was God. So who is this Word who existed from all eternity and who not only was with God like that, face to face, but was God? Verse 14. And the word became flesh and blood. He pitched his tent with us, says John. The man Christ Jesus is all of God that can be held in flesh and blood. He is everything that God wanted to say to us, both by life and by lip. He is hologos. He is God's word. Now all analogies fail, ultimately. Ultimately. 
when we try to get a handle on God. But think of the relationship of the Son to the Father like this. Whenever you see an iceberg, so I'm told because I've never seen one up close and personal, but you do not see the whole. Or anything like it, nine-tenths remain hidden, out of sight, invisible, if you like, to human eyes. But nevertheless, if you were to make contact with that with which you could see, you would nevertheless be in touch with the whole iceberg. For that which is visible is one with that which still remains unseen. It doesn't really share the same nature as that with which a sailor on the surface could not see and touch. It is the same iceberg, one and the same. And that's why just a few verses earlier to the text we're considering, Jesus tells Thomas, if you'd really known me, you would have known the Father also. And from now on, you do know him. You've seen him. And to Philip's plaintive plea, Lord, show us the Father, and that'll be enough for us, replies, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. Again, I'm tempted to say so much more at least about the sonship of Jesus making it possible because he gave his very life for us, also to be adopted by the triune Lord into his family. But I must leave that to others to unpack in greater detail, for there is a final person mentioned in our passage. I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to help you, to be with you forever the spirit of truth. And the first thing that again needs to be underlined is that Jesus speaks of the spirit as a person, not as a power. The pronoun he is used of the spirit, which is all the more surprising because like some other languages you may know, nouns often are made masculine, feminine, or neuter. And that's true in Koine Greek. And the word for spirit in Greek, the language in which John writes this gospel, is pneuma, sometimes translated breath or wind. But here, it cannot be an it, for it takes the personal pronoun. He takes the personal pronoun, he. Indeed, John's Greek helps us out even more in explaining the nature and the character of the one Jesus says he will ask for and whom the Father will send. He is another counsellor. And again, you have to take my word for it. The Greeks have two words for another. One, another of the same kind and another of a different kind. John chooses the former, not the latter, when describing what, whom Jesus is speaking about, this person. He is another of the same kind. In other words, someone just like me. The third member of the Trinity is a person, just like the Father and the Son, and whose ministry and mandate, whose purpose and goal in the life of every believer is to be for us and to be to us, all that Jesus was in his earthly ministry to his disciples. Hence this term, the parakletos, the one called alongside to be of help. Perhaps like a um, first century lawyer, you know, the person you have at your side to plead your cause. But all that Jesus was to the disciples, the Holy Spirit will now be. And that's why Jesus goes on to say, the day the Spirit's arrival will be what? 
the moment he lives with you and be with, will be in you. See, just as meeting Jesus in the flesh is like meeting the Father, so having the Spirit come to live in us and with us is like having Jesus, taking Jesus home. Now there's a thought. Having Jesus better than that take up residence in us. Father, Son, and Spirit are not three gods acting in concert nor one solitary God playing three different roles at different times, but one God whose being is revealed as triune, Father, Son, and Spirit. God is eternally what his revelation in history demonstrates him to be. Blessed Trinity. Yes, this is a mystery beyond our understanding, but it is an authentic mystery inherent in essential to the account that God has given us of himself. But we ought not to be surprised, did we? That we struggle to find both categories in which to put him or analogies by which to describe him. The Lord himself, Yahweh, divine Yahweh, said or told Isaiah to trot off to the Israelites and say, to whom will you compare me? Who is my equal, says the Holy One. But wonder of wonders, this triune Lord freely chose in making this universe, this earth, and every one of us on it, graciously to invite his creatures to know their creator in this most intimate of ways. By the love of God the Father and the grace of God the Son, and by our fellowship in and with the God the Holy Spirit, we may know him. Whom to know is life everlasting. The fact that the Trinity is a profound mystery. Three divine persons eternally united in one life, in complete perfection, is nevertheless a truth about his nature which stands behind every other biblical claim made about him. One of the greatest is God is love. God is love. He's not just loving. He is love. But God could not be a solitary being and be love for a single, unitary, alone person could not be other than an egotistical, self-absorbed narcissist. But God has revealed himself to be a community of love with all three persons of the Godhead, unselfishly caring, unreservedly sharing, generously giving of themselves each to the other. Now I repeat, you don't need to understand the Trinity to encounter him or experience him any more than you need to understand the physics of electromagnetic radiation to switch on a light and repel the darkness. The doctrine of the Trinity, I put this one in for you, Chris, is to the Christian's believer of the experience of God what music theory is to instrumentalists and, and performers and composers. It merely offers a language in which the principles and processes and performances of music can be codified, providing a formal framework which allows them to explain in words a reality that is clearly something which far surpasses it. You don't need to know anything music theory to have sung the hymn of the songs we've had this morning and 
experience, not just the music, but the one of whom the lyrics speak. The Christian experience of God was already there long before the doctrine of the Trinity was formulated, but the doctrine casts light on our experience and helps us define who it is we are experiencing. It isn't something we begin with, thank goodness, but it is something we end up with. It's like drawing a two-dimensional map which can never do more than partially represent the real world, which is what we actually experience, interestingly enough, in three dimensions most of the time. The doctrine of the Trinity is in summary of what the Christian's answer is to the question, who is God and what is he like? So it's not the doctrine of the Trinity that underlies the Christian faith, but rather it is the triune God himself, the loving father-hearted God whom we encounter through his sin-bearing son, our Savior, Jesus, by the indwelling presence and enabling power of God the Holy Spirit. So much else might be said on the topic. We've just scratched at the surface. We peeked beyond the curtain just to let in the merest chink of light that radiates from just one tiny, hardly sentence in the scriptures on the subject. But the Bible is ablaze with the brightness and the brilliance of the being of our triune Lord. In the year 325 AD, a bunch of Christians got together and held a council at a place called Nicaea. And in that moment, they, they tinkered with something that had existed before and they, they formulated what we now call the Nicene Creed, which has been an expression of faith, a distillation of the truth about the nature of God that Christians have used in all the centuries since. But I close with this thought that after they'd done all their talking and deliberation and arguing about words and they'd formulated the Trinitarian declaration of faith, they went down to the river and they sang these words. Again, I don't know the tune. Something else for you to write some music for, Chris. Glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. And all the people said, Amen.